Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we hear from guests all over the country who have been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid outside the box, I mean outside the church building ministry, that has inspired us to think outside the box and outside the church building too. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, activists, scholars, authors, liturgy makers, where God's beloved community has left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Welcome, Chris and Pat, to this space and for coming and telling your story around nurturing justice. Um, what you do in the world and why the work is so important. I'm actually going to give the both of you the opportunity to introduce yourself fully um, and with titles and pronouns and locate yourself in this space uh, so we can know exactly who you are from, from your lens and perspective. Um, but yeah, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have you here and having this conversation with us. So I am Reverend Chris Watson, Reverend Dr. Chris Watson. I am the founder of Nurturing Justice um, Incorporated. It's a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to dismantling the notion that there is a hierarchy of human value based on skin color in, in the world. And um, we have a number of different programs and activities. Uh, first, we have relational learning groups, um, groups that are engaged in deep learning um, around the topic of race and racism in America. And in those groups um, that have a number of different iterations, either, <clears throat> excuse me, from two-day workshops to six-month deep dives meeting every other week or every week, um, but we uh, engage in what we call relational transformation across the country with various individuals, clergy, and lay leaders around the country. Uh, and then we also have recently created an anti-racism for youth curriculum and uh, an anti-racism for youth journal. And we are piloting that in Wisconsin, in the Wisconsin conference with a number of youth ages 11 to 17 um, in the Wisconsin conference. We also do retreats for African-American, African-descendant leaders who are doing racial justice work. So we have spiritual respite retreats um, that, we, that we sponsor for leaders. And um, getting ready to expand into some other work, but we also do some DEI consulting and um, ex trying to expand into some work revolving the intersection of racial and reproductive justice. So a lot of stuff going on, but it's all good. Um, and so that's uh, who I am as the founder. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm also the executive director of the Metropolitan Association of the New York Conference, United Church of Christ. Um, I'm an attorney at law and um, an associate minister at Safe Haven United Church of Christ in Ridgewood, mm. Queens. So I wear- You're busy, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, that's who I am. I am a woman of, for those listeners, I'm a woman of African descent, born and raised in New York City in Harlem, daughter of a federal judge and the granddaughter of the first African-American judge in the country or in, in the state of New York, actually. Granddaughter of a prominent civil rights activist from South Carolina. So um, justice and racial justice in law and ministry, because my grandfather, who was a civil rights activist, was also a Baptist minister. So it's all wow. in my <laughs> Wow, I love it yeah, so much. I come, I come by my calling, honestly. <laughs> Pat, tell us about you. Um, I really wish I'd gone first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Reverend Pat Dolan and um, you know, to who I am. I'm a cisgender white woman uh, with ancestry in the South. And um, that explains a lot of why I am um, so, so active um, in justice work. And um, I started with, with Chris, I don't even know what year it was, um, <laughs> but a while ago, <laughs> a few years ago, um, and I was in the first long-term um, sacred conversation 
and it was for six months and I think we met weekly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Pat, can you, sorry, for our listeners, can you just uh, explain a little bit about Sacred Conversations to End Racism? Sacred Conversations to End Racism is, is a group of people, as, as Chris said, getting together relationally and meeting regularly and really investigating where our own bias is. And so we are learning to, to identify our own biases, our racism, um, because I, I'm, I'm a racist, I've always been a racist, and to some extent will always be a racist, but I can catch it more now. And that's why I continue working at it because I wanna catch it every time. Um, and so um, that's, that's what the sacred conversations let me, you know, Pat, let me just interject here also. Is yep. that Sacred Conversations to End Racism is a curriculum of the United Church of Christ that it was right. developed by Dr. Velda Love, who is the National Minister for Racial Justice of the UCC. And back in 2018, I met um, Reverend Claire Toomey, who, um, who was in the first, we were, two of, two of, two of us were, those two, we were in the first cohort of facilitators that were trained by Dr. Love to be facilitators in sacred conversations to end racism. So that actually, pre the group I did with Pat in it actually predates the formation of Nurturing Justice. Mm. Nurturing mm. Justice came after sacred conversations and was um, inspired by the notion that we were working with so many groups around the country doing sacred conversation work that we wanted to keep them connected. We saw the intersections of the work they were doing we wanted to keep them connected, introduced to one another, and keep them in touch with us. And so it was inspired, you know, God gave me the idea to form an entity that would have a collaboration and meet with the people that we had been working with and keep them in relationship with each other and with us. And that would, you know, continue to inspire and encourage us to stay on this racial justice journey. Yes. And that's the thing with the sacred conversations. We were together for six months and then it was just supposed to go away. And, and after you've been that vulnerable um, and have explored that much, you need people to meet with. You need people that are where you are um, to, to support you, to, to also hold you accountable. And, and that's what Nurturing Justice came in to be. And so when Chris started Nurturing Justice, um, I was asked to be a board member um, and, and I asked why. And, <laughs> and was, I don't know, something said about being pastoral or chaplaincy or, you know, and my, my passion for it. And so I am a board member and I'm very proud to be a board member of Nurturing Justice. And so um, have been a part of it, you know, from the beginning and um, attend a lot of the, the trainings, a lot of the um, conversations um, discuss where we're going, you know, how we're going to get there and the dreams we have for the future. And um, I, the work is, is it is so relational that, that you build a connection with the folks that is stronger than just because you have been so vulnerable, because you have been so open, because you have been digging up your stuff. Um, and each person is doing that and sharing it. And so what, go ahead. Yeah, I was just, I'm, I'm thinking about like, what makes the space accessible for that kind of relationality um, intersecting with the topic of racism. That is a very unique um, uh, place to gather um, diverse people to have such hard conversations in our culture. So what makes what makes that work in that way? Because I think there's gonna be lots of people out there and we've been talking about community a lot in the last few episodes that we have and where do people find those communities of learning um, where there can be that trust um, and mutuality um, around topics like this. Um, so what makes nurturing justice? Like what are the characteristics of that space that allow, and this is for either one of you, that allow for that kind of work to be done so well. May I answer that, Pat? I, my sure. thoughts on that? Sure. And then you should answer from a perspective as a participant. 
And I think that, you know, first of all, it's understanding that we're all participants on a journey. We're all in the process. There's no big eyes and little use, right? There's, um, it, there, we're, we're really all on the same page, okay? And understanding, you know, that we create a space where there's no shame, there's no blame, there's no judgment, and there's no finger pointing. Um, it's basically just understanding that racism is the air that we breathe. There's not one of us who lives in this country, in this world, really, that has escaped racism, has escaped Amen. being a racist, um, you know, being um, and embracing a culture that places a hierarchy of human value based on skin color with white skin being valued more than skin of, of any other color, right? Or any, so that's, that's the first thing is really, is, there's no judgment. And I think that, you know, as a facilitator and as the leader of Nurturing Justice, I really try to be as authentic and as vulnerable um, and as open as I can about uncovering my own deeply embedded white supremacist ideology. Uh, it, it's, it, it's not, you can't escape it. And so, you know, with that being said, and we, you know, we throw around a few curse words from time to time. And we also use levity um, because it's such serious and heavy work that we introduce videos that are, you know, funny and, um, but then also hard hitting. And we, um, we have prayer, we have devotion, you know, we'll have periods of silence. You know, we cry together, we laugh together, we lament together. And we understand that, you know, it's part of the human condition. And over the time that we've had Nurturing Justice going, we've developed different mechanisms. In the beginning, with Sacred Conversations, it was a lot more hard hitting and sort of in your face. And now it's much more, um, I think, the way that we approach the work, Pat, correct me if I'm wrong, I think is really much more getting at the deeply human aspects of what race and racism does to to people as human beings, how it if how it is really soul murder. It is um it is a deep spiritual malformation. And so we try to get to the spiritual nature um of what racism really is and what it does to us as children of God. Mm -hmm. And I think as an example of that, you know, in the beginning of, of one session of, you know, one class, um, the first thing we started with was decentering humans, not decentering whiteness, but decentering humans. You know, are we really the be all, end all, you know, and, and in this entire world of, of so many amazing, you know, beings. And, and trees and water and everything else. And so, you know, by decentering that and then moving to decentering whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's that type of, of approach. And, and it really is the, the leaders are, are as vulnerable as everyone else is. And, and there is a judgment, but there will be accountability. There will be pushback. There will be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge that, but that's kind of the way it's done. Is I'm gonna challenge that statement, you know, and mm -hmm. this is why. So you learn that this statement that that I think is just fine and appropriate. Oh, that's why it's a microaggression. Mm -hmm. Got it. And but so the now key I can go for it. Yeah, and the key is that you're doing it within a community that is safe and um, there's trust and there's mutuality. And so calling someone out is it's just part of the work. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a horrible thing. It isn't, you're not being punished. This, this is just what you do yeah. with, when you're in a community like this. Um, so would you say nurturing justice um, both curates and creates resources or predominantly just creates resources to do the work? Well, we curate, I mean, I spend a lot of time curating a variety of resources um, and we encourage our participants to create resources. So at the end of each group, I ask the participants in our work to create some, some kind of creative piece, whether it's a drawing or, um, a, a piece of writing, poetry, it doesn't matter what it is, um, that they create a piece of work that reflects 
their journey with us and reflects where they are now with the work and reflects their feelings about it. If you go on our website, uh, if you look at the artwork on our website, you'll see a lot of the artwork that was created by uh, all of the artwork actually on the website was created by one of the gentlemen, one of the ministers who was in a group uh, that we did in Connecticut. It was maybe our second or third group that we did in Connecticut. And while he was in session, he was drawing and it's just mm. amazing, amazing work. So um, yeah, so we ask people to create something. So we out of that, we get song lyrics and poetry and stories and artwork. And, you know, it's very, it's very mm. inspiring. Mm -hmm. And listeners, we will um, link to the website, but it is nurturingjustice.org. Is that right? Yes nurturingjustice.org. So definitely check that out. I actually had your website open and, um, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is beautiful. And now that story, you know, about the artwork being created, inspired by your work is, um, makes it even more powerful. So thanks for sharing that. So we passed along a definition of racism that Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott talks about in in his three episodes, um, it is the death dealing conjunction of ways of being ontology, ways of knowing epistemology and meaning making psychology derived from one racialized group being prescribed as normative for all persons without regard for ethnicity, heritage, racial identity. Um, I guess I'd love to hear what you think of that definition and um, perhaps if you have something to add or subtract because, um, you know, we're all doing this work and we're all finding our way. And how does that fit into your work with Nurturing Justice? So, I mean, I love Anthony. I love Anthony and he's a friend of mine and a colleague and um, he's much more brilliant than I ever will be, I'm sure. Um, his definition I found to be, I prefer to, I'll just say it like this. I prefer to use much more simplistic language. Um, Great, it just works let's, let's me, hear it. Right? So, yeah. I mean, I just think racism, like I said, racism is the air that we breathe. It really is. Uh, it is, racism essentially is the reflection that they're, that a group that thought they were dominant and wanted to be dominant for economic reasons, primarily empowered reasons, created a hierarchy of human value based on skin color and have used institutions and systems for as long as we can remember and know to enforce their desire for power, control, and dominance. And so, you know, I, I think that that, for me, it, it and it really is the air that we breathe because it is so thoroughly indoctrinated in everyone on the planet that it's it's almost like saying don't be racist is saying don't breathe, don't live. Right. So, and, go ahead, Pat. I, I was going to say for myself, you know, Anthony's definition. Um, if if I said that to most relatives I have in the South. Um, they would go, huh? Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, um, um, and it is, it is brilliant. But for the folks that I know and the family that I have down south, it, it would it would not resonate at all. And so, you know, the fact that that it is, you know, white skinned people being the norm and everything else needs to try to be as right. white acting as possible. And you know, and, I mean, and I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Pat. And if you don't act white, if you don't have skin color that's white, if you don't act white, then you are going to be less than and looked down on. And, and I think that, you know, ultimately from my perspective, especially given the trajectory of our work most recently, the notion that it is a deep spiritual malformation. Racism is a deep spiritual malformation that impacts everything it touches. It's evil. And so, you know, I think that one of the one of the ways that we try to help people understand it, especially people of European descent, 
to really understand why they they should do this work is especially if they're in the church is it first of all the church is the architect of white supremacist ideology they're not complicit they are the architects of it and have perpetuated it throughout the generations second if you're at all concerned with following the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew named Jesus, then you need to understand that it is a deep spiritual malformation that disconnects you from the divine. And if you don't get that and you're sitting in the church and you're not addressing that, then all you're really doing is you're sitting in a social club that gathers together to sing some hymns, listen to stories that you don't understand, you know, listen to words spoken by a person who you think is a is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed savior, which is completely untrue. And you, you know, and and have some coffee with your neighbors. That's not that's not the religion. That's not the 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 way, the the, the movement called the way that was started by a man who was disinherited who was basically living in a ditch, who was under Roman occupation and who was a, a person of, of African descent and of color. The people who are sitting in the pews and don't understand who they follow, who they claim to believe in. And if they did, they probably run out of the church with their pants on fire. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, he's black? What? No, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, he was black. So what would going into a predominantly white congregation um i'm not even i mean we can we can say white liberals but maybe not right maybe right. some of past relatives in the south what, what would be one thing that um, a pastor could do i would put up a picture of jesus i would put up replace one just even one of the white pictures of jesus with a picture of Jesus. <laughs> right. I mean, the, 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 that is the one of the primary problems. You know, and what, after, we, after we start in nurturing justice, after we start to decenter de humans um, and understand that, you know, humanity, that we've been really on the planet for a fraction, I mean, like literally for a fraction of the time that the planet has existed. And we start to dismantle the notion of dominion theology. And we start to understand that nature communicates and co-creates and cooperates much better than human beings ever will. Once we start doing that work, after we finish doing that work, we start to look at an interpretation of who Jesus was. I mean, really understanding who Jesus was and start to dismantle the notion that Jesus was a Scandinavian you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired hippie with his hands folded next to his cheek, and you know, and he was a, a nice, mild-mannered, meek. Um, the first thing that any pastor can do who wants to really start to approach the, the the nature of racism in this country, in this world, is to dismantle and begin to chip away at the iconography surrounding Jesus and depict Jesus as he truly existed. Um, and, and and understand and help the congregation to understand that God chose to send into the God chose to incarnate into this world through a brown-skinned mother and as a brown-skinned, and the brown-skinned mother was probably enslaved, by the way, because she calls herself a slave, chooses to incarnate as a brown-skinned quote unquote minority under Roman occupation and oppression. And so once, you know, and that's really been, that's a huge problem. There's a, a great deal of miseducation in our churches. It's, it's spiritual, it's actually theological malpractice not to teach Jesus as who Jesus really was. It's theological malpractice. So if you're a pastor, pastoring a church in the United Church of Christ or any other church in the world, and you don't have iconography of Jesus as he actually existed, um, and you don't teach his context, then you know you're committing theological and spiritual malpractice. In my well, opinion. and 
Well, and images and art are one of the simplest ways to begin to do that work. I mean, it is just not hard to do, um, especially oh, with, you oh, know, our technology. It's very hard to do because, I mean, imagine all the big, the big givers of your church turning around and leaving once you, once you, once you start replacing the imagery of Jesus as a white boy with the, the fact that he was a black man with images right. of, of, that all of your people will be leaving the church, trust me, because they, they, that would, would be so offensive. We had one woman well, in our group who is a pastor who just used images of black angels at Christmas time. And she was like, almost put out, run out of the church on a rail. No, I mean, I guess, yeah, emotionally it would be hard, but I mean, I guess just the ability to the do it. The physical act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you the could physical do it. act of doing it is, is, if you, is but not But if you want to keep hard. a job, though. <laughs> right. What, what do you think is like the psychology or the, you know, because I would say a lot of people, you know, your big donor who doesn't want you to take down the image of the white Jesus that's in the sanctuary or whatever, like they're going to have some excuses at the ready, right? Well, my great grandpa is the one who purchased that and I have this emotional connection or, you know, it's always been there or, you know, like, like those people, we have these connections to the way we've always done it that I think can sometimes like blind us to the actual issue at hand, right? We, we create these um, excuses about, this is the tradition of our faith. This is, you know, the, I love this sanctuary and the way that it is, but this is a different, like this is a different conversation than um, are we gonna have red carpet or green carpet, <laughs> right? Right, right. Well, this is basically, this is a, this is the, the beginning. That would be the beginning of the dismantling of their whole worldview. I mean, that is a very disturbing notion, you know? Mm -hmm. So if, um, if someone were to come and tell me, well, you know, truthfully, your, like if they, if, if you said, well, my, your parents are not really your parents, you were adopted when you were, you know, an infant and my whole worldview of who I am and what, my story is and what my identity is would be shaken and that therein lies the problem i mean you were to do to to dismantle their deeply embedded theological imagery either what's in their imaginary um and what they've been taught will deeply disturb their core of who they think they are you see, because if you depict God as a white man with a white beard sitting up in the sky, judging everybody, and his son is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sweet-smelling, white robe-wearing, mild-mannered savior, and the Holy Spirit is a bird, a white bird, by the way, um, then you know you're disturbing the, this, the, their proximity to God. Because if God looks like them, then they're then they're little gods. They're many gods. And if Jesus looks like them, well, they have many saviors. And the bird, well, you know, the bird just comes to give some beauty or whatever, whatever. So, you know, the, the, it really is, a, it's a complete disturbance of the worldview. And of course, they're gonna, they'll come up with every kind of excuse known to humankind in order to prevent you from disturbing their worldview, because now you've completely disturbed the foundation of everything that they think they are, even on a subconscious or unconscious level, they think they're God. And that's how they behave. People of European descent have been taught that they are little mini gods and can tell people and judge people, tell people what to do, what to think, what to wear, and prevent them from doing the things that they don't want them to do that disturbs their privilege and their power and their money and their notion of God. And if you take that away from them, then you have a problem. And but and Pat, the psychologist, can say more about that. You know, the other the other thing is is that it, it our image of of God and Jesus is so embedded. And so one of the things that nurturing justice, as you're unpacking this, is coming to the realization that I also need to unpack and change some of the images I have. 
I have spent the last year because I sometimes visualize Jesus with me. That's something I do, you know, for to help. And, and when I need, you know, need to feel closer, you know, um, and I will visualize Jesus. For the last year, <clears throat> I have been consciously visualizing a black Jesus. The difficulty of that is so supreme because for 73 years, if I thought of Jesus, it was as a white. And so to change that image, and I finally found a, a picture that, you know, I have a large picture in my room now that I look at every day. And, and I am now starting to visualize, actually visualize a dark-skinned Jesus. And the profundity of asking the question, where would we be? What would, what would ch have changed in history if from the beginning, Jesus had been a black-skinned man? And would we have then had slavery? Would we have, when we looked at a, a, a person of African descent and said, well, I can enslave this person. Wait a minute, he looks just like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I do that? You know, and, and just, you know, all of the, of the change of making that one change and making that white skinned, you know, it's, it's just, it's so profound. That Would we even have a racial construct at all? Yeah, yeah. But so it, it's really hard to replace that image when you've been doing it for forever since you were little. That's all you've seen is a white skinned Jesus, you know? And so changing that is, it's difficult to change it internally and to start changing it of, oh, this is the reality. The rest of this was taught to me so that we could be superior. I mean, and the key thing with that is, is that, you know, th there'll be some people that are like, well, that's, that's how I know my spirituality. That is how I know God. That is how I connect with the holy. But it's, but the problem is, is I, and I want to be clear with our listeners is it's not simply deciding like my image is this and your image is that and honoring those images is that when we um when we when we hold that white image up so high it actually has a ripple effect in our culture and so it goes way beyond that um individual spiritual deepening of oh you know that's your image and that's what you do it's it's the impact of that image on our culture and and our system and our institutions and our structure. And I think that's so much what people don't realize. But it's more than that though, Marta. And what really what it is, is it's historically inaccurate. I mean, we mm -hmm. had a guy- Well, there's that too. You know, that's a huge thing. I mean, we had a, yeah. one gentleman in the group said the same thing. Well, everybody can look at Jesus the way they want to look at Jesus. The Chinese can make Jesus Chinese. No, 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 no. Jesus historically was a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew Okay, living probably in Northern Africa and and was, you know, marginalized and under Roman occupation. Let's do what let's do the historical thing. Let's let's look mm -hmm. at what let's look at what the record says. The Bible actually describes him as skin of bronze and hair of wool, woolly hair. Mm -hmm. That's not mm -hmm. a white person. That's not a person mm -hmm. of European descent. That's not a blonde yeah. haired Scandinavian. So why don't you, you know everybody wants let's be historically accurate. It's not about whether or not this gives you a spiritual connection to some mythical, magical character. Jesus was a historical figure, right? He actually existed. It's not, he wasn't, you know, this isn't the stuff of fairy tales. Jesus was a historical figure that existed in a certain place in time in history and location. And so, you know, if pastors are not teaching that, then they are committing again, spiritual and theological malpractice. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't go into a court of law and, and misrepresent the facts to the judge. Mm -hmm. I will be disciplined and, and barred from practicing law, period. No, no, the sky is green. No, no, <laughs> I can't, you know, you can't just make stuff up. 
Yeah, I love that word. Because it makes people feel good. Sorry. I love that word. Yeah, no, so I, I love that word, that word malpractice um, within our, within our churches. Uh, it is, it's brilliant to use that word. And it happens every minute of the day, every, you know, twice on Sunday, at least. And, you know, it, I mean, it, it happens in the books that we read. It happens. In, I mean, everything that we absorb in our culture is, is designed to reinforce the notion that there is a hierarchy of human value based on skin color. And white people with white skin are more valued as human beings than others. And that is, the, that is I'm gonna just keep repeating what I'm saying. It's spiritual, mm -hmm. it is spiritual death. It is a deep spiritual malformation as, as Ruby Sales would say. It's a deep spiritual malformation. So Chris, I've heard you say um, in this conversation, you know, to represent Jesus as anything other than he actually would have been is, is spiritual malpractice. And I'm with you on that. And I have also heard you say, yep, and take down that great grandpa's painting and replace it with a picture of Jesus as he was, is you will be run out of town on rails. Correct. So what do we do? Like, so, I mean, right? I, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, so how do you see, first of all, the church has to, and people in the churches, pastors, ministers, you know, you have to make a decision. Are you going to be true to your call as a, a messenger and minister of God and true to the historical reality? Um, or are you going to be more concerned with maintaining your power, your position and your authority within the church? Are you going to tell the people the truth or are you going to gaslight the people because it's they it's going to continue to encourage them to give money okay and to stay in the pews there's you know there's no point in maintaining in my opinion these structures these so-called churches that are nothing more than social clubs that have coffee at the end of a service of nice hymns and a mild-mannered word that doesn't preach the actual gospel of Jesus Christ which was revolutionary there's no point in continuing that. It's doing nobody any good. And it's perpetuating the status quo. So if I were to try to do it gently, and I'm not known for my gentle uh, approach to much <laughs> of anything, but if I were to try to approach it gently within the confines of a church that is primarily of or completely of European descent, descendant people, the first thing I would do is suggest that we take out all the imagery. Let's just go for the next five years with no imagery at all. And, I, and let me teach the historical context. Let me have you reimagine God as a black woman, God as a queer black man, God as whatever, right? Something completely out of the box. Um, let me have you imagine Jesus in his historical context um, and, under, and teach, teach the history of what it was, you know, what his road must have looked like. I would be teaching um, using literature that is even outside of the Bible to re-educate my parishioners um, about the, the deeply um, mystical and spiritual nature of what Jesus actually taught. But I would first remove all the imagery. And I would just like, you know, you have to use your career because the imagery sticks people in a in a framework that is just inaccurate and it's death dealing. So if you remove yeah. all the imagery and get them to imagine, you know, within themselves and to help them stretch the limits of their imagination um, with respect to their spiritual, what imagery they need to project. And then ultimately help them to understand that every word that we utter as ministers, as preachers, as teachers, every word that we utter about God, quite frankly, it's just speculation. It cannot come close to ever capturing the mysterious, infinite nature of a God that can never be of our understanding, way beyond our understanding. Uh, I would have them studying more about nature. If you want to know more about God, study more about nature, right? So 
you know, the thing is, is that it's really getting people to sort of um, detach from the practices and doctrines and structures and, uh, and practices and doctrines and liturgies and hymns and all of these things that reinforce deeply embedded white supremacist ide ideology. In some ways, it's, it's even recreating this idea of what does Sunday school and faith formation in the church look like and how do you do that? Um, I'm specifically, I'm, I'm thinking of several things, but you know, when I used to work with young children, I would, um, and even youth, and I know that you're creating a youth curriculum as well, but it's sort of starting at that space is instead of handing them this story or idea of God, having them create their own image. Exactly. And from a very young age, if we can teach people how how for their brains to start working in that way around their idea of faith and God. And then they'll be like, well, you know, tell me, you know, then they might say to the whatever that, and I'm saying, quote, teacher, well, what does God look like? And then you'll respond with, you have to, you have to imagine that yourself. I remember specifically when my own children were really young, I would guide them through this whole process. And I had one kid that said, God is the earth. And I had another kid that said, God is love. And then they would create these images around it. So my own children don't have that. They were never taught this right. man, ma white man in the sky image right. of God. But then I'm also thinking about like, I started doing this um, womanist practice um, in the church around talk back to the text, right? And so that is, you can preach a sermon, but then you get on the floor and you get with the people and you're like, okay, what does it mean to you? Right. You, right. you, would, you would be so surprised about how hard that is for grownups to do. Um, so it's retraining people and, and having them practice, having their own thoughts around what what they heard what wisdom did they hear uh -huh. in that text based on their own sort of lens and location and then having a dialogue about that right. and yeah and i'm guessing that's sort of what you do with nurturing justice as well, well um, i would me, love i would just let me just correct you because yeah, it's yeah. not our creating Please. a youth program we we have created a youth a youth curriculum and i am okay. very passionate about this because i really believe that you know adults um, it's it's it takes like consistent ongoing work to even get adults to start to shift a little bit, right? With children, their minds are a little bit more malleable, and they see and the, the responses that I'm getting from the youth in Wisconsin are basically unbelievable. I mean, I can't even describe to you how open-minded how, how they see things that we would never see because we are so deeply in, enmeshed in this ideology, <clears throat> but. So I, I'm very passionate about the youth um, and about the curriculum we've created and really, um, you know, getting my board on board with, you know, really promoting it and, um, and fundraising for it and, and trying to get some, some traction with it around the United Church of Christ and other places, because I believe we have to hit the youth, you know, that's yeah. really important. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that it's what you're talking about, though, speaks to um, our lack of creative imagination. Um, with respect to our to spiritual matters, we've been pablum fed. You know, we've been fed milk, we've been spoon fed lies, and you know because they make most people feel good, others not so much. Um, you know, we just go with it, right? And um, and it and challenging it is a major challenge. It's 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 challenging, but yeah, and nurturing justice, we do. We create spaces for people to have these dialogues and to talk about. You know, one of the major Pat, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the major responses we get in our work, the first thing when we dis, uh, we, when we decenter humanity, that's an eye opener for a lot of people. It's like, whoa, wait, hold on, we're not the center of the world. No, you're not. And then the second piece is when we do work around great African civilizations and teach people about the history of Africa and the greatness of African <clears throat> civilization. It's not, you know, it dismantles the notion that Europeans went over to Africa and found a bunch of Bushmen um, doing, and women, 
you know, that couldn't, that, that had no sophisticated civilization. It displaces the notion that civilization started in, Mesop in, in Turkey somewhere, right? And it, it plants the or origin of humankind squarely in Africa. And then the development of that civilization is the great, one of the greatest ever to exist. And that shocks people and, and they get really angry when they say, well, how come I never learned this in school? I'm very disgusted that I was mm -hmm. never taught this. It's like, well, do you think that that is unintentional? Do you realize how intentional that was? That because if you taught people that, you know, your ancestors were not going over to Africa to steal animals to, for, to be beasts of burden, but they were actually going to disrupt entire civilizations and steal knowledge and, you know, and disrupt people's families and, and greatness it's going to make you feel some kind of way. <laughs> so they don't want you to feel bad. I mean, you see what the debates are around quote unquote critical race theory, which is a misname. Um, they don't want people to know the history of their ancestors that actually, you know, or the history of my ancestors, right? So, mm -hmm. and people get really angry when they find out that they've been miseducated, intentionally miseducated, run amok, led astray, bamboozled and hoodwinked by the education mm -hmm. system. And all you see now is a doubling down of that, of that idea that we cannot teach our children the real history. Because, mm -hmm. if, if, because if we did then, and especially if you taught pe uh, children of African descent that they come from greatness, oh, you know, those, mm -hmm. those, people will, those people would wanna rise up, you know? So it's all very intentional. It's not by accident. Well, I think that this um, this has been so great, and I want to just give you any opportunity, either one of you, the, the, the time to say anything else you want to say about nurturing justice. I mean, because one of my goals and the question I sort of have had in the last few sessions, um, even with Anthony, is finding a commun community of practice. Well, I, I, I want to say this, and then I want Pat to give a testimonial about it, but First of all, um, we've worked with a number of groups in, Cal in Colorado. In fact, we did three, three um, deep dive groups in Colorado and one two-day workshop with clergy in Colorado. Um, and so clergy and lay leaders are invited to go on our website, nurturingjustice.org, look at what we do and what we have to offer. Contact me at Chris, K-R-I-S, at nurturingjustice.org. So, you know, it is really important to be able to get beyond your bubble if you are not a person of African descent and you don't have people of African descent in your community to really network with. It's important to be in relationship with at least one or two people of African descent so you can hear a different perspective and you can come into a group with people. Um, and I always try to make the groups intentionally um, diverse so that you can have a diff, you know, from an age perspective and from a um, a, a a quote unquote racial perspective and um, identity perspective. So it's important to try to get into the group. We definitely, and then we try to keep our groups, even though they're time limited, um, most of the groups that we have, all of the people that we've been in, in group with have stayed connected to us, coming into our educational workshops, joining our collaborative when we that we have now once a month where we gather people together. We'll send them something to read or we'll talk about the election or we'll talk about this advocacy issue or we just come in just to hold sacred space for people to give them a chance to um, express themselves and to be in community, you know, and to and to understand they're not alone on this journey. And I think that you know, as Pat has articulated, you're you join you're joining a group that will hold you accountable. That's not going to be judgmental. That's going to be authentic and vulnerable in community, and that's going to hold you and hold space for your humanity. Right, we believe in the dignity and worth of all of God's creation. And we try to dismantle the notion that there's a hierarchy of human value based on skin color or any other distinction for that matter. Yeah. Pat? Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, any other distinction, you talked about the, all of the social constructs. And, and, you know, the older I get, the more upset I get with social constructs. Um, but nurturing justice is 
is that conversation of this is how it's okay for me to say I'm racist. Because quite frankly, growing up in this country with white skin, there's no other way I could be. And, and so it's not okay in the sense that I continue to perpetuate that, but it's all right that those thoughts are there. It's all right that, that I have been, you know, she says from the air we breathe, you know, my phrase has always been, it was in my mother's breast milk. Right. And I absolutely drank it in and it was a part of me. And, um, you know, you talk about it being bone deep. No, it's the bone marrow. You know, mm -hmm. it is it is that deep and and nurturing justice allows to actually dig down that deep. And it's not that it's painless. Um, it, it is painful. It is disruptive. It is hard work. And it is the best hard work you'll ever do. Thank you so much, Reverend Chris and Reverend Pat for joining us here today and speaking about nurturing justice, um, the work of nurturing justice and also the work of both of you and what you're bringing into the world. We are really grateful that you were able to come on and at least give us a little snippet of that work and teach us just a little something in this short time together. And we hope that all of you out there um, engage in the work of nurturing justice um, more long-term. So we're grateful and thank you for being here. Thank you, Mandy. And thank you, Marta, for having us. It has been a delight having this conversation with you. And we just um, urge your listeners to get in community with us and let's do this hard work together. It's no judgment, no shame, no blame. It's just love and just perpetuating and trying to like really spread the good news that uh, we are all one, one family and we need to act like it. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash JHLTB. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.